Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we're still thinking about the way Dr. Seuss Enterprises took six of his books out of print because they contained racist drawings. Katha Pollitt will comment. Also, Bill Gates, the second richest man in the world, has spent the last 20 years giving away his money. He's got a $50 billion foundation. But who exactly has he been giving the money to? For some answers, we'll turn to Tim Schwab. His three reports on the Gates Foundation in The Nation just won this year's Izzy Award, named after I.F. Stone and awarded by the Park Center for Independent Media at Ithaca College for Outstanding Achievement in Independent Media during 2020. But first... Senator Maisie Hirono from Hawaii. She's the only immigrant currently serving in the Senate, and she was the first Asian-American woman elected to that office back in 2013. She serves on the Judiciary Committee, also the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, and others, and she's the author of a wonderful new autobiography. It's called Heart of Fire, An Immigrant Daughter's Story. Senator Maisie Hirono, it's an honor and a pleasure to say... Welcome to the program. Same here. Aloha, John. Well, before we talk about your book and your life, I'd like to talk just for a minute about the filibuster. Every week on this show, we talk about legislation that won't become law unless we have the filibuster reform. I know you're in favor of filibuster reform, but a couple of your Democratic colleagues don't seem to be. Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin. What can you tell us about efforts to move them to change their positions? As Democrats, I know the bottom line for both Kirsten and Joe is that they want to actually get things done for the people as opposed to screwing them over. And so at some point when all of these bills, including the infrastructure bill, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, the George Floyd police reform and the gun legislation, when all these things fall by the wayside, they will come to the conclusion that we need filibuster reform. And in fact, I think I I heard Joe Manchin talk about supporting a talking filibuster. So I hope he's still open to that idea, because if that's what we're going to start with, then sure, make the people who don't want these bills to be passed stand there and keep talking about why they're against the bill. You served on the Judiciary Committee when Brett Kavanaugh was rammed through. I know you walked out of one of the hearings in in protest along with Kamala Harris and a couple of other people. Why was that? That was when uh, Chairman uh, Chuck Grassley decided that he just wanted to bring the whole matter to a vote. And we were not through, the Democrats anyway, we were not through with uh, what we wanted to call forth. And so as he was trying to bang the gavel, Kamala and I, so the, there are three of us, Kamala, Cory Booker, and I, we're, we're the people of color on that committee. And we all sit together, not because we're people of color, but we're the sort of the least senior people. 
So we often communicate non-verbally. And when that was beginning to happen, Kamala and I looked at each other and without saying anything, we both got up and left. And I said to Corey, are you coming? And he said, <laughs> I have my remarks against all of this. I have to give it. I said, we said, okay, well, all right then. But he, otherwise he would have come with us. We walked out and it's eventually what led to the so-called FBI uh, additional investigation, which was a sham. And then when it came to the confirmation vote for Amy Coney Barrett on the Senate floor, what did you say? I walked up to the clerk and I, it was an exclamation point to my no vote. I said, hell no. Hell no. Yeah, hell no. <laughs> so now uh, President Biden has appointed a commission to consider expanding the Supreme Court. The Constitution says the number of justices is decided by a majority vote of Congress. It's been changed many times. Are you in favor of expanding the court beyond the current nine? Oh, I am in favor of court reform. And I think his commission is going to review what needs to happen. I don't know that they're going to suggest expanding the court, but we now have basically a 63 very ideologically identifiable court, Supreme Court. And that is not good. If you can read a case and be able to determine that it was written by a bunch of conservative, ideologically driven people, that means that they're not using the facts or, or, or the relevant cases. So that's not good for our country. So that's what's happening, and I think we need to provide balance to that court. It could mean cycling circuit court judges through the court. I'm, I'm totally open to that. And the term limits, I mean, I don't see why anybody should have lifetime appointments to anything. But unfortunately, putting in term limits will not affect the people who are already on the court. So you might have to do more than one thing. Okay, let's talk about your book, Heart of Fire, and the amazing story of your life. You were born on a rice farm in Japan in 1947. Of course, this is after the end of the war. You did not move to Hawaii until you were seven. Please explain how that happened. My mother was married to a person who was both a compulsive gambler and an alcoholic. So he was he certainly didn't take care of the family. It was an abusive situation with her in-laws uh, living, living, living all together. She was uh, treated like a slave. Uh, my father, by the way, never showed that he was, he had these compulsions and, and all of that. So my mother uh, knew she made a horrible marriage and it, uh, uh, at one point she decided she had to get away from him completely. Women in Japan don't do that. <laughs> they, they just kind of gum on, there's a phrase, you know, you just kind of stick it out. But my mother um, was born in Hawaii, so she had dual citizenship and she decided that uh, very courageously, uh, to bring her children, who never knew anything about Hawaii or America, and she brings us to our to this country so that we could have a chance at a better life, a chance we would never have had in Japan. Well, of course, you came from a traditional Japanese culture where women stayed very much out of the public. Your book has a photo of your mother walking a union picket line in the 1950s during an organizing campaign at the Honolulu Advertiser. I think you were in high school at the time. So I think my first question should be not how did you become a public person and an activist, but how did your mother do it? Oh, my mother was a great believer in workers. And so uh, she, we actually entered the middle class when my mother's workplace became unionized. And so she marched, she held the picket sign because she believed that that's, uh, that's what she should do. 
And so, yes, I watched a mother who was very determined and without having to be very noisy about it. And she just took control of her situation and her life. And I learned a lot from that. She did not sit me down and say, here are my life's lessons. She just showed me by how she conducted herself. In your book, you talk about being an anti-war activist during the Vietnam War. You were a student at the University of Hawaii in Manoa. You still remember a sign from a campus sit-in. What did it say? We won't fight a rich man's war. Wow. And why did that make such a big impression on you? Well, it was the first time that I had ever questioned my government. And I wasn't even one of the leaders of the anti-war movement, but it was enough to open my eyes to uh, question government, to march. It was a revelation to me that we could do that. And, and so whenever I hear the song that we shall overcome, it's a civil rights as well as an anti-war song. It still brings goosebumps and it takes me back to that time. It's one of the reasons we have uh, we don't have the draft anymore and, and so many things that came out of that hor- horrible time. The New York Times did a photo portrait of you in 2018 and asked you to bring an artifact that had special meaning for you. What did you bring? I brought a copy of Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique. I read that book in college. And while I was raised in a very non-traditional kind of a way with a different background, I still had taken on some of the expectations of the dominant culture, which was I should get married and have children. I read that book in college and suddenly a light bulb went on in my head. And I thought, why am I even thinking that some guy is going to come and take care of me? I've never experienced that in my entire life. So I, I sort of set that aside and, and that book really opened my eyes. But despite your anti-war activism and your feminist consciousness, you spent decades in public life as what you call a polite and reserved person. Today, however, you are fierce and outspoken. What happened? I was always a very determined person. And there would be times when I would be very terse and very, um, very, very clear in my time in politics, but I never had to have a sort of the sustained vocalization of how uh, how I disagree with things. But believe me, the Trump presidency uh, made that a necessity because one thing I can't stand is a bully. And Trump was the biggest bully of them all. And at one point, uh, much as I was not comfortable talking to the national media, Um, I began to talk to them. And the first time I stepped up to a whole bunch of them with all their mics arrayed, and I said, you know, he's a liar, he's a misogynist, an admitted sexual predator, and he should just resign. I think I caught the national press people by surprise, too, because it's like, oh, my gosh, he speaks. (laughs) (laughs) So there's no going turning back, though. And it was always in me. I just didn't have to be so vocal about things, but... uh, the, the president's Trump presidency was so terrible in so many harmful ways that um, there was no going back. And I speak very plainly, as you know. I don't sugarcoat things, and I don't do what I call the Senate speak because I never learned how to do that. I do admire my colleagues who are really ripped. They can, they're so you know, adept and all that. No, I, I basically tend to keep my sentences short, and I just get up there, and sometimes I swear because. Ooh. As I say, Trump was so horrible that if you were not uh, moved to swearing once in a while, you're not paying attention. (laughs) 
So it's very freeing to become more myself. (laughs) The last chapter of your book deals with your experience during the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. Of course, you were in the Senate chamber voting on the Electoral College uh, reports. Tell us about what that day was like for you. It was an, an amazing thing to be rushed out of the Senate chambers. We, um, I, I saw the vice president being rushed out. We weren't really sure what was happening. And when we were in our safe area, we didn't know what was going on outside until they brought the TV cameras in. And it was shocking and astounding to see the storming and the siege of our capital uh, and, to, and to realize that the, these rioters were very serious. I I knew that if they caught any one of us, uh, they, we, we would have been harmed. And when I saw the images of what was going on in the U.S. House and my friends hunkered down, and they, uh, it, it was just horrifying. And yet we couldn't get this guy convicted of, uh, you know, an insurrection. And uh, in fact, eight of your colleagues in the Senate continued afterwards when you finally went back to complete the day's work. Eight of them voted to reject votes of the Electoral College and, and prevent Joe Biden from taking office despite what had happened. You see these people virtually every day. What is that like for you? It's not as though I have a lot of uh, interactions with them, although for a while, um uh, when Ted Cruz chaired the subcommittee on co- the Constitution and I was the ranking member, so he would have these hearings and I would need to show up and I would have these <laughs> exchange verbal exchanges with them. I didn't put it in the book, but there, there was an interview that I did where someone asked me, so what, you know, what would you say? And basically, I'm just basically F you kind of thing <laughs> because he deserved it. Okay, we won't go there, but uh, it's not easy. Well, why? What, what am I supposed to say to them? How could you vote to kick off millions of people off of health care just like that without a second thought? How could you not hold this president responsible for incitement to insurrection where people die? You know, these are not the kind of conversations I can have because they do and did what they did. And they continue to push the big lie where hundreds and hundreds of voter suppression bills are being considered by states all across the country. So the the big lie is still perpetuating that the country is still divided in ways that are so harmful. We at least now have a president who cares, who will take responsibility to gain control of the pandemic, who uh, will look at facts to make decisions, which is a huge sea change compared to the narcissistic, petty, vindictive, spoiled brat that used to be there. Senator Maisie Hirono, her wonderful new book is Heart of Fire, An Immigrant Daughter's Story. Senator, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you very much. I enjoyed talking with you. Everyone, aloha. Stay safe. Be kind. Bill Gates, the second richest man in the world, has spent the last 20 years giving away his money. His $50 billion foundation has made charitable contributions in the billions of dollars. But who exactly has he been giving that money to? For some answers, we turn to Tim Schwab. He looked at 19,000 charitable grants given by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation over the last two decades. 
and his three reports in the nation just won this year's Izzy Award, named after I.F. Stone, our hero, awarded by the Park Center for Independent Media at Ithaca College for outstanding achievement in independent media during 2020. We reached him today in Washington, D.C. Tim Schwab, welcome to the program and congratulations on the award. Thanks so much. I couldn't have done it without the nation. Well, the big shocker in your report to me was how much the Gates Foundation has given in tax-deductible charitable donations to private companies. How much did you find? Yeah, so as you noted, I looked at all charitable grants the Gates Foundation has ever given over two decades. That's 19000 And I found more than $2 billion going to private companies, which absolutely is counterintuitive. You do not expect a charity to be making charitable donations to for-profit companies, to large multinational companies at that. What kind of private companies got the biggest contributions? Um, you're seeing um, tens of millions of dollars going to Novavax, GlaxoSmithKline, a lot of pharmaceutical companies, which uh, listeners may or may not know. But that's really part and parcel of how the Gates Foundation works is closely with Big Pharma. What could be wrong with that? Big Pharma wants us all to be uh, healthier. Yeah, and that certainly is the Gates, Bill Gates' personal view of social change is working with and through private companies. And it's interesting, you'll find him in a number of interviews sort of debating in his head whether he's been more effective in his previous role as the head of Microsoft, through which he you know, introduced the computer revolution to the world and introduced so much social change in his mind, whether he's accomplished more through Microsoft or through giving away billions of dollars at the Gates Foundation. Um, so, you know, yeah, his view is definitely th this idea that companies are part of the solution. They're main drivers of social change, in particular, very large companies. How can profit-making corporations receive tax-deductible charitable contributions? That, that doesn't seem right. I thought charity is supposed to help the poor, not the wealthy. Yeah, it, it's impossible to, to look at these donations and not come away with this idea that the Gates Foundation is really invested in helping the rich help the poor. That's really their model. You know, a decade ago, the Lancet, the medical journal, they did a study looking at all of the Gates Foundation's funding in global health, finding that almost all of it went to rich countries, United States, Europe, Canada. So though their money is designed to help the poor brown people in the developing world, the Gates Foundation is doing this by helping by funding researchers and think tanks and NGOs in the in the rich white world. But to your question about you know how they're able to give money, it, really it's because Congress really isn't paying attention and there aren't really strict rules around how foundations operate. So as long as the Gates Foundation can demonstrate and keep paperwork that this is going towards a charitable cause or charitable ends then it's deemed okay for them to make donations to for-profit companies. I mean, it's something that I think we should be talking about. I think the Congress could be looking at it. So Big Pharma is at the top of the list. The Gates Foundation also gives a lot of donations to media companies. That's kind of surprising. What is he after there? Well, I mean, the charitable explanation is that there's a lot of topics that the Gates Foundation is interested in that don't get a lot of press coverage, things like global health. So they want to fund NPR to do reporting on global health. So they'll give them money to do that. But in doing so, if there's a certain level of editorial influence because you're shaping the, at the very least the topic on which these big media outlets are covering. 
Um, so th these are stations like NPR, but also to for-profit media companies too. But you know, a, a lot of news outlets that you and I go to have taken money from Gates over the years. It's NPR, it's ProPublica, it's Al Jazeera, it's The Guardian, it's BBC, it's on down the line. And I think it would be foolish of us, it would be foolish of us not to imagine that that financial, that those contributions don't also affect the way those media outlets cover the Gates Foundation. And I learned from your work that he also funds documentaries to be shown on TV and in movie theaters. And the interesting one is Waiting for Superman. The Gates Foundation gave $2 million to participant media. We record our show in L.A. and we regard participant media as one of the good guys of Hollywood. Yeah. Um, so that's a, a film that uh, very much promotes charter schools, which is a, a main agenda, agenda item of the Gates Foundation and U.S. education, uh, which are privately administered public schools. And it's just as you said, the Gates Foundation put in $2 million for the promotion of this film, which was very much in line with the Gates Foundation's policy agenda on U.S. education. So, yeah, I, I found a, a total of a quarter billion dollars that the Gates Foundation was giving to media companies, journalistic institutions. I, I don't know that that's all of their giving, but that's what we can see. And it's, it's a very sizable amount of money. I don't think we can discount the influence that has in shaping media narratives and shaping how we understand topics like global health, U.S. education. And one of the big claims of the Gates Foundation is their Africa programs. One of the lesser known ones, which was very interesting to me, was they made some contributions to help poor people in Kenya get credit cards. What's the problem there? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a kind of an illustration, again, of how they're working with uh, private companies, uh, making donations to private companies. So this is an example where the Gates Foundation made a $19 million donation to a MasterCard affiliate in 2014 to increase usage of digital financial products by poor adults in Kenya. You know, I talked to a, a sociologist in, in the piece and who's wondering, you know, I think MasterCard and all these financial institutions have a, a real serious financial interest in reaching the billions of unbanked people in the global South. Do they really need Gates Foundation's help? So at what point is this really charitable? And at what point is this just a corporate subsidy? And a corporate subsidy, by the way, that we're all subsidizing ourselves as taxpayers because the Gates, Bill Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates, they donate billions of dollars to their foundation and they get billions of dollars in tax tax deductions for those donations. So, you know, at a certain point, if all of us are subsidizing the Gates Foundation's work, why don't we have any say or really, to be honest, any oversight in how they operate? Excellent question. Another one of the um, the causes supported by the Gates Foundation is intellectual property rights. Creative people should have a right to their own intellectual property. What's wrong with that? Well, where that paradox really plays out is in, is in human health and in public health. It's a real paradox that so many people die every year because they can't get access to medicines they need to treat or prevent their diseases. And a reason for that is because, you know, we have these available medicines, but they're very costly because of the pharmaceutical companies will have a monar monopoly control over, over the market. And, you know, you're really seeing this play out right now during COVID where, you know, a handful of companies have control over the vaccines that everybody on earth needs one or two doses of. So if you're asking what the, what's the problem with, with patents, 
Uh, I mean, you, you're seeing it play out right now in real time with you know what everyone's, I think, appropriately deeming vaccine apartheid, where the rich are getting access and the poor are not. Bill Gates often boasts that he has paid more taxes than anyone else, uh, $10 billion, he says. But you raise an interesting question. How much does Bill Gates save in taxes by making charitable contributions? And you you try to figure this out. Yeah, so it's a point. There hasn't been a lot of scrutiny or criticism of Gates Foundation over the years, but there's been enough that buried on their frequently asked questions page at the Gates Foundation website is an acknowledgement that Bill and Melinda Gates personally do get some tax benefit from their donations. And they say it's the $36 billion they've given through 2018 the, the Gates Foundation says they've seen an 11% tax savings from that. So that's $3.5 billion. So that's a lot of money. But if you talk to independent tax experts like I did, they said that's really a gross underestimation of the tax benefits that, that they're, they're seeing. Um, and that it's probably more like a 40% tax savings or more like $14 billion. Wow. So, I mean, yeah, Gates you know, Bill and Melinda Gates are giving away tens of billions of dollars, but they're also seeing very serious tax savings. I think uh, anyone could, could look at this and ask, what, why, why are they really deserving of those kinds of tax benefits, especially if they're, they're giving this money away to for-profit companies? You know, it's, it's one of many areas that I think is ripe for a new look at, at the way private foundations and billionaire philanthropy works in this country. And that takes us to something called the Philanthropy Roundtable. Sounds like a fine organization. What does the Philanthropy Roundtable do? Yeah, I mean, going into this reporting project, I didn't realize what a defined special interest group the, the big philanthropy is, but it really is. It has its own trade press, its own publications. It has its own lobby groups. It has its own advocacy groups and think tanks. And what the Philanthropy Roundtable does is it advocates and lobbies on behalf of philanthropies. And it wants to basically promote a world in which the the prevailing status quo, where there are very few regulations and uh, very little oversight over billionaire philanthropies like the Gates Foundation. So again, this is where the Gates Foundation is making charitable donations to fund the Philanthropy Roundtable, which, whose job is to you know, make sure that the, the rules and regulations surrounding the Gates Foundation are friendly. And you know, how is how exactly does that help us help the Gates Foundation meet its mission of making a a more just and equitable and healthy world. You know, it really seems self-serving for it to be giving donations to these kinds of special interest groups that prop up the world of philanthropy. In conclusion, the Gates Foundation has declared that its mission is, quote, helping all people live healthy, productive lives and, quote, to empower the poorest in society so they can transform their lives, close quote. That sounds great. If you were writing the mission statement of the Gates Foundation, how would you put it? I've tried, you know, I wrote three articles for The Nation, and I've tried many, many times to engage with the Gates Foundation. I made many requests to interview Bill Gates, and it's really not an institution that engages with, with public criticism, with outside viewpoints that put a critical lens on its work. And it has a reputation as being unaccountable and non-transparent. I don't know if that's its mission, but in practice, that, that's how it operates. So, you know, I think if you're going to describe what the Gates Foundation is, it is the one of the most powerful, least scrutinized actors in global politics that operates with very little transparency or accountability. 
The Gates Foundation is a political organization that shapes public policy and media narratives. That's what Tim Schwab says. He won the Izzy Award for his reporting on the Gates Foundation. You can read his award-winning three-part series at thenation.com. Tim, congratulations again on the award, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much, John. Appreciate it. We're still thinking about those Dr. Seuss books that have been discontinued because of racist stereotypes, including the classic And to Think That I Saw It on Mulberry Street. Katha Pollitt has been thinking about that, too. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. We reached her today in Connecticut. Hi, Katha. Hi, John. Well, let's start with Mulberry Street. It was published in 1937 about a little boy who exaggerates what he has seen. He sees a horse pulling a cart and he says, quote, that can't be my story. That's only a start. I'll say that a zebra was pulling that cart. What did you think of that book? I loved it. And in fact, I lo- it was one of the first books I remember reading. And, it, you know, it's so funny. It's so imaginative. The drawings are so adorable. And it's just full of this kind of zany energy and charm. And I think it's really sad that it is being allowed to go out of print. Well, of course, Fox News and the rest of the right have been having a field day complaining about cancel culture. First, those darn leftists want to take down statues of Jefferson Davis, and now they're coming for Dr. Seuss. Is cancel culture a real problem, do you think? Well, I'm probably the only person at the nation who will tell you this, but I think it is actually. Um, And, you know, you can you can slice and dice any event so that it looks completely different than any other event. Um, And it looks completely irrelevant to any larger point you're trying to make. But I think there is something going on. Um, And, you know, lots of little things add up. I mean, it wasn't just the horrible Confederate general statues. There was also, you know, taking getting rid of Ulysses S. Grant, um, taking Abraham Lincoln's name off of things. Um, I mean, if they're they not could, doing that, they decided not to do that in the San Francisco public did schools. They? Oh, well, that's really good to hear. Um, but, you know, if they could take if they could change the name of Washington, D.C., because he, too, was a slave owner and a bad guy in certain ways, um, I'm sure there would be people saying, let's do it. But I don't think there were any public complaints about racism in Dr. Seuss. I I don't remember protests or demonstrations or demands. This was strictly the decision of Dr. Seuss Enterprises, whatever that is. And, you know, I wonder, did the book really have to be withdrawn from publication? Wasn't there some other way to deal with the one Dr. Seuss drawing in this 1937 book that we today consider racist? Well, I think there probably was, Um, you know, um, there were racist uh, passages and references in the Hardy Boy books, Hardy Boys books, and also in Nancy Drew. And they just quietly edited those away. And I think that's good. Um, And I'm sure that if they had really tried, they could have done the same with the Dr. Seuss books. You know, in your column, you link to a report in the Wall Street Journal about Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys, a completely fascinating story. 
the problems there were a Chinese character was described in a Hardy Boys book as having an evil yellow face. Criminals were routinely described as dark and swarthy, often had foreign accents. And the publisher of the Hardy Boys changed all this in 1959. No publicity. Nobody knew about it. Parents bought the books for their kids thinking they were reading the same books. Their kids were reading the same books they had read. And even the pen, the man who wrote the Hardy Boy books wasn't told that these changes were being made. He only learned about them 30 years later. So it was a different world. But 1959, they were already at work fixing the problems with the Hardy Boys. And you know, one thing about Dr. Seuss is Dr. Seuss was actually very liberal, even left. Um, he did cartoons for PM, which was a left-wing tabloid. Great idea. Didn't last too long in New York. Um, and I'm sure if he were alive and they said to him, look, you know, this is just making people unhappy. And I'm sure you didn't really mean it this way. He would have solved the problem for them. I mean, I don't think he was some hidebound old racist reactionary. <laughs> no, he was not. So the problem here in these books is racial and ethnic stereotyping of a kind that was very common in the 30s and 40s and 50s. What about gender stereotyping? Have you seen any of that in children's literature? Oh, my God. Children's literature is just full of it. And in fact, Dr. Seuss is full of it. <laughs> I mean, most, almost all of his major child characters uh, the protagonist of the story. Almost all of them are little boys. Um, you'll remember in The Cat in the Hat, um, the boy protagonist has a little sister, Sally, but she just sort of looks puzzled most of the time. She doesn't really <laughs> do anything. Um, there's one book that he wrote that was named for a female character, and that is Daisy Head Maisie, but she's an idiot. Uh, <laughs> uh, so... Um, but, you know, I think in books you have you take the bitter with the sweet. Um, you know, it's not one author is not the only only writer you're going to read. His books are not the only books you're going to read. Um, and again, I'm sure if if Dr. Seuss were here today and I had a chance to talk to him about the lack of, you know, spunky female characters, um, he would say, you know, you're really onto something. Um, I'm going to sit down and write a really great book. And of course. Uh, children's books today do everything they can to combat racism and gender stereotyping. I live near a children's bookstore, believe it or not, uh, and their window is full of inspiring and uplifting stories about Rosa Parks and Dolores Huerta and also Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So this is currently almost a requirement of children's bookstores, although I suspect the kids would rather read Dr. Seuss. Well, um, that could well be. I mean, I think, you know, there, there have to be a lot of different kinds of books and a lot of different heroes. And I think all these new books are great. I think it's really important that we have them. Um, but I myself like the more, you know, out there imaginative books. Um, for example, I'm reading to um, my granddaughter now um, a whole bunch of Beverly Cleary books because she just died at the age of, I believe, 104. Amazing. And, uh, you know, we read all the Ramona books and now we're reading the Henry Huggins books and they are so wonderful. And what's wonderful about them is that they 
they're very realistic, but they're realistic in a way that both in terms of their, the characters having, you know, feelings that sometimes aren't what you would, you as a parent would want your child to have, you know, uh, Ramona, Ramona, the past, you know, she's very bossy. She's very determined. Um, and uh, Henry Huggins is sort of a dreamer and he's always getting in trouble because he's not paying attention to the thing that's right in front of him. Um, and that's very trying for his parents. Um, but um, they're also something that you don't see a whole lot of now where kids are either hyper-privileged, which is never commented on, or they're really poor um, and struggling. And, you know, there's incest in their family and all kinds of terrible things are happening. And the Beverly Cleary character, families are middle-class. They're sort of lower, maybe a little lower middle-class, but the, you know, the mom gets a job, Ramona's mom gets a job um, as a medical receptionist. Or, and because, the, because if I remember correctly, the father who has a job as a, uh, a supermarket manager decides he wants to train as a teacher. So there's times when they have sort of money is tight and, um, you know, they don't have a huge amount of money. They don't spend a lot of money on consumer items. Um, and that's very refreshing. Uh, and <laughs> you think it wasn't so long ago that those were normal people in children's books. And I think they're not so much now. So if we want to protect children from racist and ethnic bad things, where do you think we should start? Well, I think white children need to read a lot of books about black people because black people already read a lot of books about white people because that's mostly what it is. Um, so I'm all for diversity in terms of the choice of books. But I think the most important thing is books that have fresh and inventive language, um, which is what Dr. Seuss did so well. I mean, in so many children's books, of which I have read a great many, it's like chewing old newspaper, you know, <laughs> just not very interesting. And even the ones like um, the Magic Treehouse books, which are immensely popular with children, where a boy and a girl go back in time to different times in history, and they sort of help you learn a little bit, bit about history. But the writing itself is not very exciting. So I think that's the most important thing. Another issue here is, do you think kids believe what they see in children's books? Are they just receiving this information? No, I don't think that that, I think that's another thing we do. And we don't just do it with children, is the idea that there's this one-to-one -one correlation between something that you are given to read or watch and what you make of it. And we know from reader reception theory that people are always constructing their world. It's not so passive. And I think that the most important thing for parents to do is whatever they read their children, they should be talking to their children about it. So that when you see a picture, a, a stereotypical picture of a Chinese person eating rice with chopsticks, wearing a coolie hat or whatever, you can say, you know, this is this is not the way Chinese people really are. You realize that. But that's how people thought of them up until very people in America thought of them until very recently. And in fact, that's still an issue today. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, <laughs> I have to tell you, my parents who were both very radical, they let me read anything. They let me read Bible stories and they were both ferocious atheists. And my father always used to tell me he was always constructing the world in ways that 
he hoped that I would go along with. He told me that my kindergarten teacher, although a very nice person, was actually on the side of the bosses. Uh, Whoa. <laughs> I know. <laughs> he, he told me all about uh, the execution of Louis XVI of France. Bravo. Uh, yeah, that was a good um, thing. So, so, you know, my father, my parents had a lot more influence on me than anything I read. And did you believe the Bible stories that you read when you were a kid? No, no, I didn't. It didn't make me religious at all, but they were wonderful stories. And I remember some of the illustrations and, oh, I have to correct something. It wasn't Elijah that the kind widow gave the room to when he was in town with the beautiful striped blanket and the as, as reported in your column this as week. reported in my column it was actually elisha and oh. somebody on somebody on twitter said why do people always get them confused <laughs> i understand from your column you've also been reading greek myths to your eight-year-old granddaughter that's some pretty strong stuff there. How's that going? Well, the Dolaire's Book of Greek Myths is just one of the most wonderful books ever written for children. Um, and it explains the myth. It tells the myth in just a very exciting and beautiful way. But it does sort of nip and tuck. So, for example, you do not learn that Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and beauty uh, was born from the castrated testicles of Uranus. You know, I never knew that until I read your column, and I've been having nightmares about it ever since. Very disturbing. It's very <laughs> disturbing. Um, we're told the Dolaires say no one knew where she had come from, <laughs> which I thought was, but I thought that was not only very sweet, it's also true. Where does love come from? Probably not from the castrated testicles of some, <laughs> okay. some superannuated god. Okay. And what about the other wild and frightening things that happen? You know, Pandora opening the box. Is well, that is such a common, you know, thanks to my granddaughter, I now know more about myths than I used to because we're reading a whole bunch of myths to her. But the theme of the curious woman who gets everybody into trouble is very, very common. And so you have Pandora who opens the box that's full of evils, which she's been told, don't open that box. And until only only hope is left behind. That's all that remains in the box. That's our one thing. But also the story of Adam and Eve, it's the same story. Eve was curious. What, what, what's, what, what'll happen if I eat this apple? Let's find out. Or Lot's wife. Lot's wife wants to look back. She looked back. Women don't look back. Yeah, don't look back. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what does your eight-year-old granddaughter think of all these scary and horrible things? Well, you know, she loves these stories, but it's true. I have to tell you that when we read uh, some of Grimm's fairy tales to her, those were too scary for her. There was one, I forget which one it was, that did involve visiting at night a gallows that had some dead corpses hanging from it. No. <laughs> that was too much. <laughs> yeah, Grimm is one of the most horrifying. Grimm was bad. And you know who else is very grim is Hans Christian Andersen. I mean, the little match girl, she dies of cold. She's just a poor little girl and people don't buy her matches and she dies. Um, that's very disturbing. So in conclusion here, what do you think kids take away from all of this? What do you think kids take away from Dr. Seuss? Well, I hope what people take away from Dr. Seuss and from their reading generally is, is a sense of a, the world is big. People are different. The English language is, has thousands of words. You should use them. I hope that it just gives people a sense of the largeness of life. And I also like the way you argue that 
kids can be critics. Kids can say, hey, how come all these stories are about boys? Or I don't like this part of this story. Or Absolutely. I mean, I think it's very important for parents and children to talk to each other while they read. Don't just, you know, I'm reading you this story because so, I hope you'll go to sleep soon. <laughs> <laughs> Katha Pollitt, her latest column is titled, Dr. Seuss's Mistakes Are the Least of Our Troubles. You can read it at thenation.com. Katha, thanks for setting us straight on this one. Oh, thank you for having me, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.